Today, Eisleben is a charming little medieval town of about 25,000 in the German state of Saxony-Anhalt. It is at least a thousand years old. There are mentions of Eisleben in the 10th century. It has an old town and a new town, and the new town was built in the 14th century. And it's most famous, of course, because Martin Luther was born there in 1483. He only lived there for a year before his family moved away, and most of the significant stuff about Dr. Luther's life happened in the university town of Wittenberg. But little Martin was baptized in Eisleben and returned there often during his life, and by coincidence or perhaps by providence, Martin Luther was visiting Eisleben on business in his 63rd year when he died. So he's buried there. Today you can visit the house of his birth and the house of his death and his baptismal font is still being used today, 500-odd years later. It's possible that after Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Paul, and the Roman Emperor Constantine, Martin Luther had a greater impact on the Christian church than anybody else in history, this copper miner's son from Eisleben. And here's why. During Martin Luther's lifetime, the Medici Pope, Leo X, wanted to build a magnificent cathedral on the presumed site of St. Peter's grave, the first pope, of course. And just like a place like Kenilworth Union Church, Leo needed cash to do this, and so Leo came up with the mother of all stewardship campaigns. It was called an indulgence, and you know what that is from your Western Civ course at university. This is how it worked. All have sinned and fall far short of the glory of God, we read in Romans. On our own, we are poor and pitiful in God's sight and have shown insufficient righteousness to earn God's good favor. We are in arrears. We are bankrupt. We are Greece. We are Puerto Rico. We are Illinois. That's most of us. But some of us are not in arrears. Some of us are in the black. They're called saints. And the saints lived such righteous lives that they built up a surplus of merit. They had more merit than they needed for themselves. And the thinking went that you could bank this surplus merit in a heavenly bank vault. And so the church has two things. The church has the keys to the kingdom, the combination to the vault. And it also has the remnants of the saints. And the remnants of the saints are precious. They're called the relics of the saints. And so, for instance, the castle church at Wittenberg, where Martin Luther lived and taught and worshipped, had 17,443 relics of the saints. The church at Wittenberg had the thumb of St. Anne, a twig from Moses' burning bush, some hay from Jesus' manger, and a thorn from Jesus' crown. And get this, the church of Wittenberg claimed to have some milk from the breast of Mother Mary. That has to get you somewhere, right? Fourteen churches in Europe claimed to have the head of John the Baptist. And Martin Luther calculated that of the original 12 disciples, 18 were buried in Spain. <laughs> Wittenberg alone had enough rich relics to shorten purgatory jail terms by 1,902,202 years. And so, if you wanted to shorten your prison term in purgatory by a few thousand years, or that of your Uncle Charlie, who perhaps had 
died unshriven of the black death at the age of 27, all you had to do was put down some cold, hard cash to touch or view one of these holy relics, and voila, you got to heaven a lot earlier than you deserved to, and Pope Leo got his cathedral. It was all very convenient. There was this character named Johann Tetzel who traveled the length and breadth of Europe selling these indulgences and raking in truckloads of cash. Tetzel might have been the greatest salesman in the history of the world. He was the Don Draper of the 16th century. If Tetzel were alive today, he'd be selling cigarettes to teenagers and scotch to expectant mothers. Tetzel came up with this clever little jingle that went like this. When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That's got to rank right up there with you deserve a break today or a diamond is forever or can you hear me now or just do it, right? And then Martin Luther, this obscure Augustinian monk and Bible teacher from Wittenberg, comes along and has the nerve to do something that nobody apparently has done for a long time. He actually reads the New Testament. Can you believe it? He read the New Testament, especially Paul's letters to the Romans and the Galatians. And he has the chutzpah to say, you know what? I bet it doesn't work like this. I bet you can't bribe God. I bet you God's not an ATM machine where you can slip in your debit card, punch in your password, and out comes heaven, right? The Reverend Dr. Luther reads Romans and discovers, this is important, listen to this now, Dr. Luther discovers that righteousness is not something that God demands. Righteousness is something God gives. God doesn't expect us to earn God's good favor on our own strength. God knows us too well. Instead of waiting for us to get it right, God, because of Jesus Christ, grants us an imputed righteousness, a righteousness that doesn't belong to us. Luther called it an alien righteousness. It doesn't belong to us. It's not ours except as a gift. And this appears also not only in Romans and Galatians, but in that beautiful text I read from Ephesians a moment ago, the hallmark text of the Reformation, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So then that in ages to come, God might show the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness to us through Jesus Christ. And so Martin Luther is a big deal even 500 years after he nailed those 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg because he granted Christians two monumental freedoms that we hadn't known for a long time. Freedom from the ecclesiastical hierarchy in Rome and freedom from all this striving and climbing, this reliance on ourselves. And that's why Luther's a good topic for Independence Day. He is the author of freedom. You know, there's a Thomas Jefferson stone out there too. 
And I thought very seriously about dropping the chronological order with which I've been preaching these sermons with and rushing Thomas Jefferson on this day near the anniversary of his Declaration of Independence. Might have been a good thing to do, but then it occurred to me that you can't have Jefferson unless Luther comes first. It's a straight line from Luther to Jefferson. He's one of the first individuals with the chutzpah to go up against the bristling, gargantuan omnipotence of the Roman Catholic Church. He talked about the priesthood of all believers. Don't let the Pope get between you and God, he said. The Pope's no better than you. We're all priests. When Luther was born, you see, most, most people were answerable to one towering tyranny after another, subjects to their kings, slaves to their masters, serfs to their lords, craftsmen to their guilds, Christians to their priests, priests to their bishops, and their bishops to pape. And then, partly because of Luther and partly just alongside him and around him in the 250 years, between Wittenberg and Philadelphia, all these hegemonies start crumbling. Some historians call Martin Luther the first modern man. And what they mean by that is that he was born in the 15th century and died in the 16th century. He was born into medieval Europe and almost by himself created modern Europe. It was Luther who began the revolution that ends with Jefferson's all people are created equal. So that's, first, that's Luther's first gift of freedom to us. And there's another, this freedom from striving and climbing and self-reliance. It's his fixed, unshaken certitude that on the last of all your days, when you've breathed your last and finished your race and rest from your labors at the end of the long lingering years of cosmic time on the throne of all the world there is not an implacable judge but a kind father who wants you to live and flourish and thrive God can't be bought. God can't be bribed. God can't be had. God cannot be impressed. And yet God looks with favor upon us anyway because of Jesus Christ. And so when we come before God at the end of all our days with the burnt offering of our life in our trembling hands, our threadbare merit and our pinched and narrow generosities and our meager accomplishments, and our frequent disloyalties, and our repeated mistakes. All God sees is Jesus Christ standing there before the throne. So do you think this is good news in a world where seventh graders wonder whether they'll ever be cool enough or athletic enough or clever enough to impress their implacable peers? And when our high school seniors agonize over their college apps, wondering whether any decent school will accept them, whether they, whether they will be acceptable in the eyes of those inscrutable and treacherous admissions gods, where wives wonder if they will ever be beautiful, beautiful enough for their ro roaming husbands, where bankers work a hundred hours a week striving for unreachable goals, 
kind of nice that God already thinks you're perfect. I mean, what do you have to do to earn acceptance in this world? In 2006, Joe Girardi was named Major League Baseball's Manager of the Year and then instantly fired by the Florida Marlins. Same thing happened to George Carl in 2013, NBA Coach of the Year, instantly fired by the Denver Nuggets. In 1927, Babe Ruth had one of the greatest years in the history of baseball. It's the year he hit 60 home runs, of course, but he also hit for an average of 356 and had 164 RBIs. The trouble was, Babe Ruth played for perhaps the greatest team that there ever was, the 1927 Yankees, 110 wins, 19 games ahead of the second-place finisher, Babe Ruth, hitting 60 home runs, 356 average. He didn't even win the Most Valuable Player Award that year. Do you know who did? His teammate Lou Gehrig, 373, 47 home runs, 175 RBIs. After that monumental year, 1927, Ruth would play for another seven seasons for the Yankees until 1934 in his 39th year. During his career, he helped the Yankees to seven American League pennants and four world championships. In the first year after his retirement, the Babe asked the Yankees for tickets to the opening game of the 1936 season at Yankee Stadium, the house that Ruth built. And the Yankees said, sure, just send a check. This was in the days way before George Steinbrenner. <laughs> sure, just send a check. 500 years later, Martin Luther's revolutionary theology is still a great gift to the likes of you and me. At the cosmic core of all the world, there is a beating, bleeding heart that aches for your thriving that yearns for your flourishing. For God so loved the world and you. A few years ago, Tracy Orr of Dallas, Texas, fell so far behind in her mortgage payments that her bank finally had to foreclose on her home. And they put it up for auction. And for some reason, Tracy Orr of Dallas, Texas, decided to attend the auction where they were selling off her own home. And as the flippers were bidding on her foreclosed home, Tracy Orr wondered whether this was such a great idea to attend this real estate funeral. A woman named Marilyn Mock ended up winning her home with a bid of just under $30,000. Miss Mock had never seen Tracy Orr's home, and she bought it anyway. As she was leaving the building, Miss Mock handed the deed back to Miss Orr, who promptly moved back into her home. They had never met each other before this auction. People need to help each other, said Miss Mock. It's as simple as that. And according to Martin Luther, that's the way it works with God. We're way behind. We're bankrupt. All our ink is red. And then God comes along and says, here, 
It's yours for free. My son took care of it. Welcome home. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.